Yeah, during this series on discipleship, we're going to have an artist on stage during each message. Uh, Mrs. Caitlin Maya is helping us, and you'll be able to see in real time as the masterpiece is being made. Uh, but you probably won't be able to figure out what the masterpiece is until the last sermon, because our series is called Masterpiece in the Making. And it's a look at the way that God continues to shape and mold us to become more like Jesus until that very moment when we see Jesus face to face. In the first message of the series, we're going to a passage that might be familiar to many people. And on this baby dedication day, it's a story that Jesus told about two sons. And one of them was a son who ran away from home. And uh, this is the parable that's sometimes called the parable of the prodigal son. So we're headed over to Luke chapter 15 this morning. Luke chapter 15, and the notes are in your bulletin and your children's bulletin. They're also on the YouVersion app if you'd like to follow along. The title of this first sermon is A Blank Canvas, A Blank Canvas. And we're going to be there in Luke 15. And it's, a, it's an entire story that Jesus told, so I'm going to read the whole story, and I would encourage you to follow along with me, either on your Bible, on your app, or on the screens. And he said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and despair, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in thy sight. I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring hither the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his elder son was in the field and he came and drew nigh to the house and heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he's received him safe and sound. And he was angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answered, he said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee. Neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. 
It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. You know, this famous story that Jesus told is a beautiful picture of love and redemption. But it's also a story about identity, which is a theme we'll uncover today. From the prodigal, we're reminded that many times in our life, we try to paint the picture of our lives instead of allowing the master to do his work. And so I want you to go with me to the far country for just a minute where we find the younger son, and his energy was spent. He batted away the flies that swarmed over his head. His arm collapsed and spattered mud into his eyes. He had dried muck covering his entire face, and he felt like he was baking in the midday sun that intensified the stench of his pig-infested bed. For a traditional Israelite, a feeding pen for swine was the worst imaginable place to land. It was a living death, the crushing result of his quest for identity. Delirious from hunger and lack of sleep, he lay unmoving with fattened pigs lazing nearby. His stomach wrenched with hunger. He was malnourished and all alone. He had nothing left, no resources, no one who cared, no place to go. He was already dead to most people who knew him and soon would be a dead young man in a pig pen. It had been an incredibly short ride to rock bottom. But in a lucid moment, a thought passed through his brain. I wonder if my father would hire me. I can never be his son, but maybe he would give me a job to pay my debts and let me live as his hired laborer. The idea was unthinkable, but it was better than death. See, first century culture was built on traditional identity, and one didn't dishonor his father without the rejection of the entire family and village. And not that long before, this young man had spit in his father's face, wished him dead, demanded his inheritance money, and run recklessly from home. He had dived headfirst into his newly liberated individualistic self. Nobody would define him anymore. He had life by the tail until very quickly he didn't. Now, before we get into the three types of identities that we want to cover from this story, let's introduce the idea of identity in a general way by asking the question, what is identity? And identity is your deepest idea of who you are, okay? And if you have come to an age where you begin to process this, everybody has identity. It's your deepest idea of who you are. And it's a source of three basic things, acceptance, who accepts me, who affirms me, and why. Uh, acceptance, then security, how am I held together? What keeps me going in life? And the third one is significance. Where do I find my sense of value? You know, a lot of identity comes from what's called the four Ps. Uh, and you may want to write these down somewhere. People, they are the who of validation. Okay, they're the ones who validate you. P 
people, uh, performance, what I do to gain validation. And that's what performance-based religion is all about, is how do I gain favor? And, And then possessions, what I own to substantiate validation, right? I have a Lamborghini. I have a Porsche. I have Nikes, right? I have this jersey. I have that. That's who I am, possessions. And then the fourth one is purpose, what I desire or dream to fuel validation. So the things I think I am, right? The picture I'm painting for myself, purpose. And so often, like the prodigal son, we look to temporary things to give us permanent solutions. And our psyches call out identity to us. Uh, I am who affirms me, people, which we mentioned. Uh, I am what I do well, performance. I am what I own, possessions. I am what I dream, purpose. And there are so many identity factors. We really don't have time to dwell on them, but I'll mention uh, what they are. Uh, These are factors in our identity. Uh, Race, ethnicity, culture, family of origin, religion or moral performance, uh, gender. In modern times, many young people have been told that something called sexual orientation is what gives them identity. But then, tragically, that often leads directly to an identity crisis. Uh, Then we also have uh, wealth, possessions, power, uh, status, love, romance. Uh, For some people, it's their past abuse, victimization, failure, regrets that shape identity. Uh, In modern times, social media, which sometimes leads to this artificial contrived identity. The generation you're part of, whether you're a, a boomer or an Xer or a Yer or a Zer or whatever all the things are. Uh, your function as a person, your abilities, your occupation for a lot of you is your identity. Uh, when people ask who you are, you give them what your job is, uh, your career, your relationships, your friendships, your personality. And all of these things come together to lead us toward two primary identity structures that are horizontal. They're based on what happens in this life. And so let's talk first about internal identity. Internal identity. I define me. I define me. And this might also be called a modern or progressive identity. And you hear a lot of people these days saying, I have my own truth. Right? I've heard people saying this, I have my own truth, and living my truth is a great idea as long as you're the only person on the planet. Okay? You know when it falls apart? As soon as you bump into other people who are living their truth, at the same time you're living your truth. You take the prodigal son. His truth was, if I could just escape from my father. I would do things my way. My dreams would be fulfilled. I would make great friends who love life just as much as I do. I would have the best of the best. Success is headed my way. Life will be sunshine and roses and the flower. But his truth ran into trouble right away. See, modern identity isn't real. It's just a mirage. 
It's your version of what's real. And that crystal clear image in your head gets distorted because any person who shapes his or her own identity has a God smaller than self. Now think about this for a second. I want you to really consider what I say next. If you can build your own God, that means you are smarter and more powerful than your deity. How do you understand that's a big problem? Right? If you're smarter than your God, that's no good. And so the modern identity is all promise, no product. Right? Or as they say in Texas, it's all hat, no cattle. Right? It's a modern identity is this vicious cycle. Just be whoever you want to be. Only you can fulfill you. But it always requires a better you. It always asks for more, which produces massive anxiety. And there are so many weak identity narratives that we're fed constantly by the world. Uh, the corporate world says that sex, success defines us until we don't have anywhere else to go. Uh, academia says that knowledge defines us. Society says that self-discovery defines us. Pop culture says that identity is something we create. Like in The Greatest Showman, we can live in a world that we design. We can make our dreams come true. We are the change we've been waiting for. But it's all fantasy. Just like the identity in the mind of the prodigal. He had a false picture of reality. Because the happily ever after message appeals to a core desire but a world without a loving, personal God doesn't ever deliver on what it's selling. And the logic itself is dangerous. Think about this. Uh, in one breath, secularism says, go create your own dream. You're the master of your fate. In the next breath, they say, you came from nothing, you mean nothing, and you're headed toward nothing. Right? It's completely illogical. Those things do not ever match up with each other. Is it any wonder that 86% of people around the age of the prodigal admit to wrestling with depression, loneliness, disappointment, and insecurity? And they begin asking, what's the point of it all? In the United States, over the past 20 years, suicide has increased by 33%. It's now the second leading cause of death for Americans aged 10 to 34, and even some older than that. And even though we notice this identity crisis more than in the past, it's always been part of the human experience. And we're going to see many examples in this series. Because when self becomes the center of your world and the source of your meaning, you are headed for massive disappointment. You're headed for distorted identity, for a portrait that doesn't make any sense, just like the prodigal experienced. But you know, he wasn't the only disappointed son in his father's house. His older brother had an external identity. That's the third part. Others define me. External identity. Consider some of the stories that people tell themselves about who they are. 
And I want to see if you kids can help me figure this out, okay? Uh, Elsa is Princess of Arendelle, heir to the throne, and holder of some pretty sneaky snow cone powers. Uh, her individuality is a danger to her community, and so her parents hide her. She is forbidden from using her powers. And right on cue, Elsa and Anna lose their parents, and they grow up hidden behind palace walls. And then comes Coronation Day, and it's Elsa's duty and destiny to serve. Now, pause the movie for a second. This is external identity, traditional identity. It's the one she was born into. It's who she's told she must be. It's what her people expect her to be, what she's been prepared to become. A hip play on another movie. Simba just can't wait to be king. And his version of leading will be much different from his father Mufasa's. But then he gets blamed for his father's death and flees the kingdom in shame, suffering the loss of identity, the failed king who never was. Belle is expected to stay home and marry Gaston. Moana is expected to stay on her island and lead her people. Jasmine is expected to marry a powerful prince and create an international alliance. Ariel is expected to stay under the sea for the rest of her life. And who could ever forget the identity confusion in Buzz Lightyear? A toy who believes he is actually a space ranger. His friend Woody finally screams at him, You are a toy! Now Buzz still doesn't get it. He replies, You are a sad, strange little man, and you have my pity. See, traditional identity is who I'm supposed to be. Now, some of, there's a generation here that got nothing I just said. But you're going to get what a traditional identity is. That's for the young people. We've got to keep them going here. You know, traditional identity has some positives that honor heritage and serve the good of community. Think of soldiers and first responders and athletes and students, etc. It's why society works. It's why we pay taxes and have neighbors and enjoy friendships. We behave well for the benefit of the whole. But in the end, external identity is always conditional. It's performance-based. The minute you stop being useful, your identity crashes. And it's happened to some of you as you age through retirement, as you're uh, your dynamics of your family change, and you feel like there's no use for you anymore, and your identity crashes. After all, when you give someone the power to approve of you, you also give them the power to disapprove of you. External identity is always dependent on others. It steamrolls individuality, and it is cruel and unsustainable. It causes us sometimes to neglect those who deeply love us, to please those who merely love what we produce. And it starts with family, tribe, village, school, nation. As an infant, you didn't choose your name. You didn't choose your gender, your family, your ethnicity, your hometown. Now, most generations of people in human history haven't asked, who am I? 
because that question was answered for them very early on. Right? They're told for their whole life, this is who you are. And this is the identity that's imposed on us. In this series, we're going to see some of the forms that takes. In this story of the prodigal son, the older brother represents the traditional external identity. And I want you to consider him for a minute as he sweats through another day of hard labor and resentfully imagines his kid brother resting on a beach in some exotic location, free from work and care. And his thoughts return to the field. It's his father's field, slave driver. He mutters under his breath. The work had doubled after the kid had left. What a foolish, reckless decision that was for his father to give up a third of the family's resources. Stupid old man. And he kicked the dirt again. White, hot tears of anger mixing with the sweat. See, the older brother checked all the external boxes, but his heart was just as full of rebellion as the younger brothers. That's how traditional identity works. Pull your weight and somebody else's if you need to. Do your duty. Bow to the demands of the family. And even though he was living faithfully under the demands, he was disconnected from his father's love. It was all rules, no relationship. He was faking and becoming angrier with every passing day. While his kid brother openly stated, I don't deserve to be called your son, the elder brother thought that he certainly deserved to be called the son and more. And finally, dusk came, the end of another exhausting day. He approached the house, and he's puzzled by the sound of music. And he called the head of the servant, what's all the celebration? Your brother has returned. And your father has restored him to sonship and declared this a night of celebration. His heart seethed. His blood boiled. Through gritted teeth, he released, he released a murmur. After all my hard work and honor, after all that kid's disrespect, how dare he? I'm the good son. The deserter has no place here. The servant said, are you coming in? Enraged, he stormed away. He was competing for his father's favor, not realizing it was already his. He was performing for something he had already been given, like Christians who think they have to check boxes for God to love them. Most of my life, I was taught to be like the older brother, not the younger. And unfortunately, I became a lot like him. Maybe you too. Obedient, hardworking, living up to expectations, but thinking that I deserve what I have and what I need and what I want. And we all probably identify with one brother or the other. But I want you to notice something about this story. This is not a story of a good son versus a bad son. It's the story of two angry, disconnected sons. One living under an internal identity and the other living under an external identity. And both finding out that horizontal identities don't satisfy the soul. See, the modern identity 
looks at God as a means to an end. It tries to leverage his blessings for personal gain. The traditional identity becomes rooted in what we do for God, what we do for others, instead of in what God has done for us. The traditional identity excels in pride and hypocrisy. And Jesus' story teaches us that we can receive his love without truly experiencing or being transformed by it. There is an answer to this problem, and it's the fourth part, gospel identity. Gospel identity. Internal says, I define me. External says, others define me. Gospel identity says that Jesus defines me. Now, most of us have believed in Jesus longer than we've understood the implications of gospel identity, which is a vertical identity, where his love redefines everything about us, and the blotched-out messes that we have made of our lives, whichever identity we've lived under, have to completely go away. See, here's the thing. We don't add Jesus to our picture, right? In India, they, a lot of people say, I'll add Jesus as a guru to my other list of gurus. No, you don't add Jesus to the picture he is the picture. See, you can't be found until you've been lost. And this identity in Jesus, this gospel identity, always starts with the blank canvas of redemption. The new creature that is born into the family of God. 2 Corinthians 5.17 reminds us that any person born in Christ is a new creature. Old things are passed away Behold, all things have become new. And when it becomes new, God delivers to us a blank canvas so that he can write on our hearts what he has made us to be. We don't shape ourselves to the gospel as much as we try. No, only Jesus can do the shaping. And so look, if you're, the, if you're the younger brother, gospel identity says, repent of your rebellion and self-discovery and run home to your father's heart. And if you're the older brother, the gospel identity says, repent of your self-righteousness and denial of your father's love. Resolve your anger in his grace. See, this story calls back both sons to the father's arms, but only one actually accepted the offer. It was the lost one. It was the one who didn't think he deserved it. He stopped running from and ran to. And so we've seen the I define me son and the others define me son. But if we miss the role of the father in the story, we can't really understand gospel identity. And I want you to think with me through a Another sunrise, another sunset, another sunless day. He picked up his walking stick, just like every day, and headed to the top of the hill where he could see the road from miles away. And he stood and stared for an hour, dreaming of repentance and restoration, hoping to see the dust stir from the feet of a lone traveler. And suddenly, he noticed motion on the road. He squinted into the distance. Someone was walking toward the village. His heart climbed up in his throat, 
And as the figure came closer and more into focus, warm tears began to blur the old man's vision. For this was no stranger. He recognized that stride. And in a radical break from the traditional culture, he hiked up his fatherly robe, dropped his stick, and ran. He barreled recklessly down the path, not worrying about his footing and the rocks and dust. He rushed toward his son, arms flailing, calling his name. Ignoring the stench, he threw his arms around his boy and began to kiss his neck. Imagine a love that is willing to kiss filth. Imagine a gospel that absorbs our sin and walks our fallen hearts toward home. Imagine the condemnation he will face from the older brother, the Pharisee, for welcoming the outcast and showering him in love. A ring, a robe, a fatted calf, and a welcome home party. The prodigal never even finished the script that he had rehearsed so many hundreds of times in his head. He had been telling himself, I'm going to rise, go to my father, I'm going to say to him this, and he starts to say it, and the father cuts him off and gives him immediate repentance, which leads to restoration. And even though his undeserved, unconditional love poured out in abundance, his identity as a son was firmly established, but now it had a depth of meaning never known before. His father's words revived his heart, renewed his identity. This is my son. The father's love totally redefined him and presented him with a blank canvas. And our faith challenge reminds us that loss isn't the end of God's masterpiece. It's just the beginning. Loss isn't the end of God's masterpiece. It's the beginning. You have to go through the loss before you can be found. You have to be blind before you can be seen. A right relationship with your father will flow into the right internal and external relationships. And a gospel identity makes Jesus your point of reference in life, not yourself or others. With him in view, your journey will be secure and delightful. Instead of clinging to others for acceptance or approval, you can start loving, enjoying, and blessing them. This, my son. This, my daughter. That identity, that acceptance, that security, that significance give us a blank canvas. And if your identity today is not vertically connected with your Father in heaven, I urge you to fall on your knees before the Father and allow him to embrace you with his love and to proclaim on you, this my son, this my daughter. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this beautiful day where we've been able to commit and dedicate children to you and yet we pray that their primary identity won't be a family name or a job or a dream or a possession, 
that their primary identity will be child of God. Because when we have our primary identity rooted, grounded in you, you shape the canvas of our lives in a very special way. And so I pray that you bless now. Guide us from this place and guide us in this series as we look at the masterpiece you want to create in us. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.